Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. Hey, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So in this episode, I have the pleasure in welcoming back Sedi Frederick, who is now the chair of Kent and Medway's Integrated Care Board. In this episode, you will hear what it's like in the early stages of our new integrated care system and the role of the chair, the skills involved, the challenges at play, and from an influencing perspective and a leadership perspective, what I think really comes across in this episode is the importance of language, the importance of making the process for easy for people to engage. Sedi talks about helping build his credibility by being accessible. We also talk about the aspiration of becoming an integrated care system and whether that is a reality and the intention for Sedi and Kenton Medway to start a movement. I absolutely loved it. Always, 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 always. You're really going to enjoy it. Get your pens and paper out. It's a nice long episode. I just know you're really going to enjoy it and there's so much to take from it. Enjoy. Hey, Sedi, thank you so much for joining me back on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? I'm really well, Tara. And I have to confess, when you invited me to come back, I thought this must be a mistake. Perhaps you'd forgotten our first podcast that we did way back. But uh, then your assistant contacted me again. And I thought, OK, maybe, <laughs> maybe she does want me back. I don't know. So it's great to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. I loved, I was saying, Ophir, we, I loved your episode and definitely would have you back. You should have your own podcast. <laughs> so could you share with our listeners what you did when we first met and what you do now for your role? Of course. When we first met, I was chair of North Middlesex University Hospital NHS Trust, a medium-sized district general hospital in North London. And I became chair in 2019. Six months later, of course, we went into pandemic and our entire world changed. And the role of the chair in a NHS trust, hospital trust changed. And in 2021, I was given the opportunity to throw my hat in the ring to become one of the 42 chairs of the new integrated care boards which I did and was pleased honoured in fact to be a 
appointed as chair of the Kent and Medway uh, ICB. So what was it like saying goodbye to your previous colleagues? It was extraordinarily hard, if I'm honest with you, because whilst during the pandemic or most of the pandemic, we were unable to go into the trust. I spent enough time getting to know people within the trust and the community we served and local politicians and local volunteer leaders and so on, that it was really, really hard. And to be frank with you, I probably haven't totally left. Um, I'm still in touch with lots of people. I was exchanging messages only this morning with a number of the non-executive directors about getting together for a dinner and a, a chat. And I think what I really enjoyed about North Middlesex, and it's the same for many trusts up and down the country, of course, is the fact that it has a beginning, middle and end. As I've described it, you can get your arms around NHS trusts, you know, a small one. We have four odd thousand staff and we served a very discreet population across uh, two boroughs in North London. So really had the opportunity to get to know people, uh, learnt about their stories, their families. It was a real family feel in the trust. Dare I say in stark contrast to the role that I have now, because it's a uh, it's a it's a much more amorphous role, so to speak. I think it's fair to say. So, how long have you been in your your new position? I was appointed as chair designate on, and I started on the first of November uh, last year, twenty twenty one. And of course, with the with the formalisation of the Health and Social Care Act into into law, um, became a formal. ICB chair on the 1st of July this year. So what was it like? So you've got tremendous experience, but a new job is a new job. And this is a job that nobody's ever done before. So how, what was your strategy? You know, like you read books, you know, like your first hundred days. What did you do in your first hundred days? I taught, I mean, we we had some housekeeping to do. We had to appoint uh, a new chief executive, we had to appoint a new board, uh, which we've only just completed with the appointment of our partner non-exec directors. And we are continuing at this point in time to be recruiting to our executive team. But I had the benefit of having worked in Kenton Medway for almost six years as chief executive of a social care provider, a fairly large social care provider based in Kent that delivered a range of services for older people, residential care, domiciliary care across Kent, Medway and South London. And when I applied for the role, I only applied for the Kent and Medway role. I was approached by a number of the recruitment consultants who invited me to consider applying for other roles in the southeast and in the eastern region. But I decided I was only going to apply for Kent and Medway and one of the recruitment consultants said to me, what if you don't get Kenton Medway? And I said, that's absolutely fine. But I really wanted to go back to Kenton Medway, having worked there for six years, got to know the people. So I was very fortunate in that I was able to go back and renew some uh, professional and personal acquaintances, reconnect with a whole range of people, and effectively use the fact that I'd, I'd known the patch politically and, and, and everything else as an entree into discussions with lots of people. So in addition to doing the, the housekeeping, the, the structural stuff, the establishment of the organisation, it was very much about going out, talking to as many people who could find time to speak to me. 
I spent time talking to colleagues within the organization and across Kenton Medway, uh, as many people who could fit me into their diaries. So where you say you've, ju- you've just appointed a CEO, right? Paul Bentley started with us in January of this year. Yes. So between November and January, who was in that position or was nobody in that position? We still had the accountable officer for the CCG okay. and ICS in, uh, in, that, in, in that position. And of course, it was very difficult because he was applying for the role as well. And, you know, the whole thing was, was quite sensitive at times. So then we appointed Paul. He had to work his notice. He was the chief executive of our community trust in, in, uh, in Kent and done an amazing job there. So it was difficult to manage everything, exits, incoming, and so on. But we, we managed it okay. So what is the relationship between the chair and the CEO? Well, in principle, it's a very similar relationship to the relationship between the chair and the CEO of a trust. Paul is responsible for the day-to-day running of the organisation. Um, I primarily focus on working with the board, but also given the nature uh, of the changes that we're going through, I think I've got an ambassadorial role, a PR role in effect, to go out and talk to as many people who we want to work together very differently within what is now known as this integrated care system. Um, So it's on a day-to-day basis. At one point in time, I think Paul and I agreed that we're speaking to each other more than we're actually talking (laughs) to our wives. Um, Because as you would expect in this early stage, there is reason for us to speak virtually every single day, sometimes several times during the day, plus WhatsApp communication, plus emails and the usual things. So Paul's responsibility is to to lead the organisation, is to lead the relationship at that level between ourselves and our NHS trust partners, be they community trust, mental health trust, acute trust and so on, and also manage the relationship we have with our regional office and NHSE, plus all the other organisations that we uh, work with. My job is very much to support Paul. Um, I have a leadership role. There's no question about that. And Paul and I have discussed where that could and should start and finish. But the reality is that we are a team. I think it's fair to say, and we need to work very closely together. So this might be a hard question to ask, answer. Being on the inside, does the new structure make sense to you? in regards to ICS, ICB, integrated neighbourhood teams, all the other stuff? It is a hard question to answer because I think it's still quite early days. I think we all recognise how complex the, the new structure is. And there are lots and lots of moving parts. But I do think as we move forward, as things settle down, it will become increasingly clear just who does what, who is responsible for what, how the different parts of the system have to work together. It is interesting that one of the things that uh, you know, one might question and challenge is, of course, this sense of integration. 
because arguably it's not an integrated system. It can't be an integrated system. And I, I and I, I, I was reading a, a really interesting dissertation that was sent to me through a third party. Someone, University of Durham, had written a, a, his master's dissertation about this word integration within health and social care, because we're now talking, of course, not just about the NHS. And he was arguing that it can never be an integrated system for obvious reasons, perhaps in terms of, you know, the money's different, the political landscape is different across the system with local authorities, social care, very different position. And he was arguing that, and this word collaboration. And I think that's going to be the challenge for us. And that's what I'm trying to get colleagues across Kent and Medway to, to really think about is how do we collaborate differently? This is not, you know, no one's taking anybody else over. You know, we have sovereign organisations, we have democratically elected local authorities with their own political and legal mandate and expectations. We have over 6,000 voluntary organisations, we have housing associations, educational establishments, universities, schools, etc. We've all got to come together to work very differently going forward. And I think part of the challenge that I have found, and it's not a challenge that is unique to Kent and Medway, is that the NHS has never really reached out to many of these organisations about the contribution they can make to improving the health of the population, reducing health inequalities, and so on. So part of my role is to try and communicate lead that communication with organizations explain to them exactly what we're trying to do a lot of these organizations have no interest in how the nhs is structured um if i can just perhaps share a story with you i went and spent a wonderful afternoon with a small organization based in margate and they were they are doing some amazing work with young people using music uh, they had their own TV studio. Young people produce podcasts. And they're doing all that work. And they are supporting the mental health of young people in a very challenged part of Kent. And I went and spent an afternoon with the, the charismatic leader of this organisation, Chapel Eli. And he said to me, what, what is all this stuff that you are doing, said he? So I tried to explain it to him. And after 10 minutes, he, he's all... He almost glazed over. His <laughs> eyes glazed over. And he said, look, you know what? I have no interest in all that stuff. And I said, but you realise the work that you are doing, the benefit it has keeping young people out of the mental health system that is overwhelmed at the moment, post-COVID and so on and so forth. He said, well, that's all great stuff. But we're just doing what we think is right for our local community. And that stuck with me. And then I thought... My job, actually, is to not talk about the relationship between integrated care boards, integrated care partnerships, the role of provider collaboratives, health and care partnerships. It's to, it's to simplify all of that in a way that people can understand and buy into. And that led me to start talking about what I think we need to do in Kenton Medway is start a movement. And I thought about this. And I started to socialise the idea amongst colleagues within the ICB, with our local authority leaders and others. And everyone started to kind of get into this idea. Of, so we're starting a movement. 
So if we think back to the most successful movements there have been, so the women's suffrage movement, for example, the civil rights movement, for example, most recently, of course, the Black Lives Matter movement, people all over the world, irrespective of what they did, whether they private sector, whether they were individuals, organisations, could buy into that sense of we need to change. We need to think differently. We need to do things differently. And literally without doubt, once you start talking about a movement, everything else falls into place in terms of the relationships between local authority and the role they have to play, the role the voluntary sector can play, large and small organisations, the role of the NHS where individual trusts come into this. And so what this is leading to is the development of the Together We Can movement across Kenton Medway. So to your point, the complexity that we are working within quite rightly will occupy the minds of people like myself and others. But for everybody else, you know, whether you are an individual living in Margate or someone who relies on services in Gillingham, perhaps, or, or Chatham, you have no interest in all of that stuff. What you want to know is someone out there understands what your needs are. They're doing everything they possibly can to meet those needs, be they from the primary care end of the system through social care, education, whatever it may be. And all of that comes together, particularly to, to, to make a difference in improving outcomes, reducing health inequalities, and, and just this whole sense of the broader economic development of an area. We know that NHS organisations are known as anchor organisations because of the economic benefit they bring, the number of people they employ. How does all that fit in with the wider business and, and commercial ecosystem, for example? So when you're talking, I'm thinking of a classic, you know, like management structure, you've got like stakeholder mapping. So you've got stakeholders that, you know, towards the bottom that are like, I don't, you know, like I'm not interested. And then you've got other organisations. I bet you have people like, look at me. What about us? What about us? Take my call. But going back to Eli, he mm. like, what does he, does he need to do anything different? He's managing his service. He's making a difference. People know about the service. I'm sure he's at capacity. Like, what does he need to do anything different? Because one of the things I've written down is there's, collabor there's collaboration. And then you've got, there's this element of control. Because when two parties come together, yeah. typically, not always, but there's always a one, you know, that somebody's always got a more of an interest or got more resources or got a higher stake. It's not always equal. So mm. when you collaborate, there is an element of giving up control. Like this, because there's two questions. How, how does, you know, what does Eli need to do? Or was it just a listening exercise? Like no. what it's really, I mean, that's a great question, Tara, because that was the second part of the conversation. So Eli runs a, a cafe and music venue, and he's been using his, you won't like me saying this publicly, but some of his profits to run a social enterprise. Why would I, why would I not like that? Well, 
I'm not saying he would. I'm not saying you would. Oh, his point <laughs> yeah, of view. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I said to him, you do realise the contribution that you are making to the NHS, for example. And part of our challenge is how do we move the money around? So, for example, if we were able to directly commission Eli to do more of what he currently does, he, and he made this absolutely clear, he has no interest in replicating his model in Canterbury or anywhere else. You know, this is for the yeah. Margate community, for young people in desperate need of support, peer support, where they can support each other, mental health, and so on and so forth. But it wouldn't take an awful lot of money to really establish that service in that part of Kent. And I said to him, you do realise that we just can't write you a cheque for 10 or 20 or 30,000 pounds. There are forms to complete. There are outcomes to think about. And he said, you know, I'm not sure I want to play that game. So to your point, our challenge is, how do we simplify the process within which organisations like the one that Eli runs can do more of what they do taking the pressure off the NHS, supporting people to be well in their local communities without asking him to complete lots and lots of forms, returns, bids, tenders, and so on and so forth. Here's someone with a 20-year track record. And if I said to him, that's all right and good, but we want to commission the service, you have to tender for it. He may well say, no, I don't. I'll just come do what I'm doing, thank you. So I think that's where we've got to learn to work differently. We recognise that we are working with public money. So it's not a case of writing a cheque and coming back in a year and saying, how did you get on and so on? We know that. So how do we simplify what we do? Because I think, and going back to the discussions I've had with lots of voluntary sector organisations, and perhaps because of my own background in the voluntary sector, many of the answers that we're looking for lie in the voluntary sector. We've got to work differently with the voluntary sector. We've got to work differently with housing associations. We've got to start thinking about the wider determinants of mental and physical health and well-being and so on and so forth. So how do we simplify what we do going forward in ways that engage people, that are safe, tick the boxes that we know we need to tick in terms of probity and and so on and so forth. So those are the challenges that, that we face because the old world, so to speak, you know, the commissioning environment, CCGs and so on, there's a place for that going forward. Of course there is. But in the brave new world in which we're going to be working, we've got to find new and different ways of working with new and different partners. Okay, so you've talked about maybe those that have got low interest, but they make a huge impact. How are you managing the stakeholders that have got a very high interest and they want your attention? Again, it's about listening. It's about engaging. And that level of engagement, when you're talking about a large organisation, be it at a, a local authority, for example, or one of our NHS trusts across Canton Medway, that engagement is at different levels. So I meet with the chairs of our NHS trusts every two weeks. I have a meeting. They've invited me to join their meeting. And then perhaps the week later, our chief executive would meeting the chief executives of those NHS trust organisations. So what we've got to do is we have to listen, but we also have to be really, really clear that 
the way things have worked in the past, if we are going to deliver in the future, have to change. And if one of the tools in our toolbox to deliver that change is setting up more one or more provider collaboratives, then so be it. If that's the tool in the toolbox, in our case, we're talking about establishing more than one provider collaborative in other parts of the country. What may work for them is a single provider collaborative. Could you just tell our audience what is a provider collaborative? Apologies, yes. A provider collaborative is a structure by which NHS provider trusts come together to work differently in the future, to work together in the future. And one of the things that we have to do, of course, is we have to try and improve productivity and value for money. And what you've also got to do, tangential to that, but equally important, is reduce variation in outcomes. And working together, be that, for example, in a cancer hub or uh, a stroke service, across trusts that brings expertise together, consolidates knowledge, shares that knowledge, shares learning, improves outcomes for people is a way of doing that. In Kent and Medway, we already have a very successful mental health provider collaborative that's that's delivered real significant improvements in outcomes for, for uh, people. We've got to develop that going forward across different parts of the NHS ecosystem. Okay, so you've mentioned maybe the answers are in the voluntary sector. You've mentioned provider collaboratives with a little bit more of an emphasis on hospital CEOs that you're meeting with every two weeks. You've mentioned mental health. So, Mark, you know what I'm going to say next is where does primary care fit in? If you're meeting with a hospital CEOs for hospital trust every two weeks, chairs, chairs, or chairs, yeah, yeah. every two weeks where does where does primary care and when i say primary care i don't just mean general practice mm-hmm. so where is that conversation well that conversation has started when i i mentioned that i've been out and spoken to lots of people including uh, lots of primary care colleagues across uh, kent and medway there's some really innovative work going on down in Thanet, for example award-winning work going on down yeah, in I saw that. Yeah. um i'm really pleased that individual uh, practitioners within primary care have reached out to me and to paul bentley seeking us out having conversations i spent afternoons with groups of gps down in uh, east kent for example i spent two days down in east kent talking to as many people as possible, including lots and lots of GPs. But clearly, as we all know, primary care is at the at the sharp end of the challenges that we face at the moment, whether that's about access, whether it's about ambulance waits, overcrowded EDs and so on. Much of that, we've got to think differently about, about primary care. I've had meetings with our local LMC, for example, uh, well, more than one meeting, and I'm speaking at conferences in Kenton Medway, again, to engage people, give people a sense that actually we want to have different discussions with people. We need to listen differently. And we need to be influenced by what people say. So as our CEO, Paul Bentley, keeps reminding me, you know, we've got a sizable budget, $3.6 billion across Kenton Medway, And all we have to do is kind of fix health and social care. 
you know, it sounds easy, doesn't it? You know, <laughs> um, but there are no quick answers. We understand recruitment and retention across primary care is a real challenge for us all. We know that we are still living the impact of the pandemic. That's had a huge impact on individuals, whether that be GPs, uh, pharmacy, and so on. All of these areas come to a situation now where, on the one hand, People want change. People want things to be done differently. The challenge that comes out of that is what do we do? How do we do it? How do we engage people differently? There are no easy answers to any of these challenges. There are no quick fixes. We're going to have to work through this agenda over the next year or two. You know, we've got some challenging short-term things that we've got to respond to. A tough winter ahead. We can only expect and plan for, you know, the worst in terms of the confluence of the cost of living. If we have a, 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 you know, everyone's looking at the long range weather forecast, hoping and praying that we have a mild winter, no flu epidemics and, and the like. So all of that's in front of us. Plus, we've got to be thinking about the medium to long term challenges. So one of the things I just kind of wanted to like kind of take a bit of a pause and for our listeners. So when thinking about influencing change and thinking about leadership in uncertain times, and we, we should be used to leading in uncertain uncertain times but some of the things I've just highlighted and it seems simple but it's not is around like how do you influence change so you've talked about simplifying the message simplifying the process it's kind of cutting out the jargon for those that I mean just we should just cut out the jargon you know like full <laughs> stop um but cutting out the jargon especially for those organizations and people that may you know like we don't all talk the same language language is really really important you also mentioned one of the things I also wanted to highlight is I suppose it's around communication so a lot of listening I think us as healthcare professionals we have to listen we have to read and we have to engage in the communication so I live in Kenton Medway I live in Whitstable one of our PCNs that we support is in Dover one of them is in Dartford and I've also worked with your integrated medicines optimization team and I one of the things I want to say is that the communication I think from Kent and Medway is excellent like I read the Kent I don't know if it's a primary care bulletin but I think it is a Kent and Medway primary care bulletin that is really really helpful and even the other day it was like this is what the new you know like primary care team looks like and these are their names. It was really, really, really helpful. So the communi- so communication, and we talk about it all the time, but you've got people going out into the community. And then there is that email and online digital communication, which is really important. We were both at the Integrated Medicines Optimization. I've worked, we need to change these names, but that <laughs> we went to that conference. I think, and I, I was only involved in, a, I was involved in bringing them together and facilitating that group of chief pharmacists. So you had primary care, what was the CCG, you had secondary care, had 10 chief pharmacists come together. Now, I think that is an, it was an excellent start of collaborative work. It was really tough. There was lots of tough conversations around, if I do this, what are you going to do? And what kept coming up is when, if okay, yes, we can work in a more integrated way, but who holds us accountable? Do we, how do, and how do we hold each other accountable? So I think 
it's always evolving but I suppose I just wanted to highlight I think there is lots of good practice in Kent and Medway and you've got those facilitated conversations and when I say facilitated it doesn't mean having a facilitator it just means that group of people coming together to work out what we're going to do and they did have a strategy and you've got some strong leaders there you know like Mildred took she took um, workforce and Mm -hmm. she ran with it it's such a lovely team such a lovely team so there is some really good work and I think the communication is excellent I have exposure to other areas so the comms to you know the, the role of comms the role of management the role of administration you know like there's so many things there's so many like oh there's too many managers there's too many administrators but the team in Kent and Medway nothing is perfect but from somebody that's quite low down on the ground I can see and feel things are happening and they let us know what is in the pipeline and the patient engagement and winter planning and all of that stuff. That's really good to hear. The communication challenge, I think, for us all, he talks about accountability. One of the accusations that was levelled at me is that historically accountability has only ever gone one way and we've got to, we've got to change that. We have to create ways that we hold each other to account in an authentic and meaningful way. We know that we work in a highly regulated and systematized structure. You know, we have NHSE, regions, ICB, all sorts of people, CQC coming in and so on and so forth. But there is something about how these conversations take place, how we hold each other to account in terms of keeping our promises. I think the communication challenge that we have is nothing like we've ever had before. I think the NHS has always done a reasonable job of talking to itself. We've come out of the pandemic where the command and control structure made communication, or it shaped communication. It was very, very top down, understandably so. When you look at how we managed the pandemic compared, for example, to how our colleagues and friends in America managed the pandemic, where you had federal, you had state, you had states bidding against each other for PPE and so on and so forth, it made matters very difficult. So during the pandemic, we understood exactly what was required and it helped us get through. Yes, there are things that we could have done differently and we we will reflect on that during the inquiry and so on. But coming out of that, if we are going to be addressing some of these multi-generational, long-term embedded challenges, we've got to learn to communicate differently, both within our own organisations and with all of those parties. I'm balking at the word stakeholders because I'm not quite sure that this is the language that we need going forward. I, I still see it. I got an email today, stakeholder bulletin. I thought, well, actually, that is more than a stake. We're more than stakeholders in what you're trying to do. We are partners. We're collaborators. We want to work well with you together to make things happen. But that communication challenge is very different going forward. We have got to get messages through to people who, for many years, have thought, actually, these people don't care about me, whether it's an organisation or an individual We've got to get messages across to sovereign organisations like NHS trusts. We've got to communicate in ways that perhaps we haven't before, because we need to get those organisations to come together willingly. Yes, we know that CQC will be looking at systems and under well-led or something. It'll be, you know, is this trust working well in a system? But nevertheless, 
before we get to CQC knocking on anyone's door, you know, we've got to be able to say to governors of foundation trusts and boards of all trusts, we need you to willingly work differently. You know, our regional director, Anne Eden, says the solution is in the system. In other words, this is down to us. And that's my point about starting a movement. You know, everyone has a role to play. In the end, we can only be successful if everybody works together. And that may well mean giving something up. It may well mean doing less of something. As I mentioned earlier, Tara, one of the big challenges is how do we move the money around? One might argue that we we spend too much money in the acute sector, not enough in the community sector, not enough in primary care, and so on and so forth. And if we are going to reduce pressure on the front door and the back door of, of, of hospital trusts, then maybe we should be spending more money in community services. Maybe we do need to work differently with local authorities, pool budgets, for example, the Better Care Fund, all sorts of different tools that we might have at our disposal to work in a much more collaborative way with our local authority colleagues, because that in turn will reduce the pressure on the acute sector. So when I see colleagues in the ambulance service being pilloried for delays and so on and so forth, it is a system-wide issue. You know, we're all part of this. And that communication, or the communication that we need to get that across to each other, is really important. I've heard ambulance drivers saying, well, you know, they don't want people going into hospital because it affects their waiting time, so it's better off if they're outside in an ambulance and, and so on and so forth. We've got to get through that. You know, we've got to appreciate that actually the ambulance sitting outside an ED department is not just sitting there. There are people who are relying on that in the community, on the ambulance in the community, and they need to be back out on the road supporting those people. So that's where we've got to come together. What are you currently working on and what challenges are at play? I think I'm really conscious, and I'm sure every ICB chair is conscious but for the foreseeable future, we're going to have to be putting in a lot more time than we are contracted to do. There's no question about that. My aim is to share some of this with my non-executive director colleagues. Every ICB has appointed a number of independent non-executives. We've appointed five. We have a number of partner non-execs coming from the primary care sector, the acute sector, local authority, mental health, and so on, and the community a voluntary sector member and it's sharing some of that of that load we have non-exec directors who live in east kent i want them to be getting out talking to people in east kent so it's not just about me we've got to get to a point where we all understand what we're trying to achieve how we want to work the contribution that we need others to make and i want to let as many of our non-executive directors who can find the time to also go out and share the conversations that I am currently having. But I think back to your point about influencing, I think it's about reminding people, replaying for people what I'm hearing. And that is the fact that what we've tried to do in the past has only been successful to a point. Everyone I've spoken to, without doubt, with no exceptions, want things to change. They're putting a lot of faith in this new system that many people don't understand, but they know what it what it's trying to achieve. And I'm replaying that to people. And I'm saying to people, look, you have to play your part 
in this change. You can't say that you want change and then stand back and say, you guys have to change, we're not going to. So much of this comes down to relationships. Much of this comes down to having those conversations with people. Later on, in a few months' time, we're organising a two-day symposium, a working title, where we're bringing together, it could be up to 100 leaders from across Kent and Medway, from every sector, including the police, including the fire service, including education, to really start engaging all of the parts of this system, as it keeps being described, to understand what their contribution has to be and needs to be if we're going to move the dial. We're going to spend two days together talking about this, committing ourselves and holding others to account to be part of this change. So it is about going out to people, many of whom are at best sceptical and at worst cynical, given their experience of we can change. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be perfect. We are dealing with lots of different pots of money. We are dealing with local authorities that can't overspend legally and arguably would like a lot more resources to deliver services. You know, there's no magic wand, but we've got to come together and make the best of what we've got. And I think that's going to be the challenge going forward. And it's going to take time. And unless we demonstrate in real terms that we are committed to this, and that will come down to what people like me say. So I'm speaking at conferences. I'll speak to anyone who will wish to speak to me that the diary allows. I'll invite other colleagues to go out and start talking to people across Kent and Medway and invite them to hold us to account. I think that's the big challenge going forward. How are you currently managing your time? So talk. <laughs> <laughs> so in one actually, in one of our previous episodes, um, Half a car um, came on. Dr. Half a car, or Professor Half a car, said, "You know, every I don't know if it's every day or every week. He clears his to do list, and I think he only takes on like three big things. So he'll finish, you know, finish one before he takes on another. How do you manage your time? If if that was the approach I was taking, I'd probably get very little done right now. If I'm honest with you, I think one of the things that is really helpful at the moment are the technological tools that we have at our disposal it is easier to fit in more conversations if you don't have to travel you you know how difficult it can be to get around kent for example it takes a long time to get from one end of kent to the other and so using technology helps also ensuring that i am spending time talking to people going to where people are i spent a, a great morning with a carers organisation, and initially, somehow they thought that they needed to come to me, and I said, no, I'll come out to see you, because part of the credibility that we're looking to establish is the fact that we will go and meet a small organisation, had a wonderful afternoon with a, a, a fantastic community organisation down in Romney Marsh, miles from anywhere, but they're doing amazing work. And I really wanted to go and spend some time with them. So I don't have an easy answer. I don't have any tools. I've got a wonderful personal assistant or executive assistant who tries to manage my my diary. But at this point, there's there's very little that I can do apart from just put, put the hours in. That's not me being 
you know anything special every icb chair i speak to is putting in lots and lots of hours how many when you say um, how many days are you supposed to work is it a, or is it a, like i don't know I to choose my words carefully is it a full-time role like is, no you, no okay. it is supposed to be three days a week but of course the nhs doesn't operate on a three day a week uh three three days a week basis so at the moment it is with my other nhs roles that i have it is literally five days a week and then and then some so I'm yeah. I'm going to a, a conference on a Sunday in 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 a couple of weeks you know and that's absolutely fine at the moment that's what's needed and that's what we have to do when thinking about the makeup of your board mm. I think Med Kent and Medway so the integrated medicines optimization board was really diverse it was amazing so good I think Kent and Medway is diverse, but what does that diversity look at the look like at the top? Well, we really struggled to recruit interest, the range of diversity in our non-exec director applicants that I would have liked. So I personally reached out to people. I use my social media, uh, whether LinkedIn or Twitter, encouraging people to apply to become a non-exec director within Kent and Medway. Argument didn't help that there were lots of other organisations also looking for non-exec directors. And I spoke to a couple of people who said, look, you know, I've applied for one where I live. You Do you know? not have to live in the place where you, I thought you had to live in the place. No, no, oh. no. Okay. Um, so we are attracted a reasonably diverse uh, field. We have diversity at board level in terms of race and gender. Could we do more? Interestingly, back to my earlier point, I was meeting the chairs this morning and we were talking about that very subject around non-exec directors across Kenton Medway, be they trust, be they ICB. So we have more to do. There's no question about that. So I have nothing to be defensive about in terms of, you know, we made huge efforts. We, we used recruitment consultants who understood the challenges, made every effort. We just did not get the range of applicants that I would have liked. We did, we did appoint some amazing people, though. So in that respect, I'm really, really pleased. And then just to kind of start to bring this interview to a close, in regards to your leadership style, is there anything that worked really well in your previous role that does not work in you, this current role? I think the answer has to be uh, yes. I think the ability to directly influence at the front line is different here. I think that what I am able to bring to this role is a really broad experience. So having worked in the voluntary sector, I've mentioned before, worked in housing, I get the challenges that, that people are facing on a day-to-day -day basis, having run a social, a couple of large social care provider organizations. But the principles of my leadership style haven't changed. And what and are I, they? What are, the, what are your principles? Very much values driven very much about putting the purpose of what I try to achieve is the people that we're here to serve. And I'd like to, to I'd like to hope that people see that in every conversation that I have. I've gone through that process of being egotistical in terms of me, 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 me. I'm reading a really interesting book at the moment called The Second Mountain. And um, the author whose name escapes me, I'll, I'll think of it before we finish, talks about the first mounting, about the individual, about your ego, about where you are in terms of your career and about me and, and, and so on. And when you get to a point where you get to the top of that mountain, you start asking yourself then, okay, so what's next? 
then you have the second mountain, which is all about other people. It's all about service. So, you know, from that perspective, that's where I am. I'm on my second mountain. And what I'd like to think my, 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 my leadership style shows is that it's not about me. Yes, allegedly, I am a physically larger-than-life character. You, you've met me, you'll, you'll call that. But, you know, what I'm doing at the moment is hoping to make a contribution to improving the health and well-being of 1.9 million people across Kenton Medway. I can't do that on my own, of course not. But I, I, what I like to think is that my leadership style is around my authenticity, uh, my enthusiasm, I've described myself as naive because I still believe that we can do so much more. It doesn't really matter which newspaper you pick up or which radio station you listen to. There's lots of people talking about what we can't do, about the blockages and the things that get in the way. They do exist, and I'm, I'm, you know, I recognise that. But I do believe that we can do a lot more with what we've got, and I want people to to see that in me. I think a big part of my leadership is the ability to paint pictures with words so people can see something different, go back to this movement idea, and then simplifying the message. I think organisations need clarity. Translated to where we are now, I think systems need clarity. So this whole sense of providing some clarity going forward, cutting through all of the techno babble, the jargon, I think it is a big part of what my, my leadership's all about. So when we first met, and you know, everybody kind of gives their introduction and you said like, firstly, you know, like I'm Sedi, you know, I'm a, I'm a dad, I'm a husband. I would hope you don't mind, but I would like you just to touch upon your family life and your amazing wife. So you have gone from one insane amazing job she might have thought oh I'm gonna get a bit more of my husband she did gonna, yeah it's gonna be amazing he's gonna she start did. to slow down she did and then you've taken on this huge role off air we were talking about I was saying I went on holiday I feel like embarrassed saying this but I went on holiday I left my phone at home I was like to my team you know and people like if you need anything contact me I was like well you can contact me but I, I won't have my phone on me so, <laughs> like you're gonna have to sort it out yourself yeah. You went on holiday for family, but you still had an eye on work. How are you managing your own well-being and your personal family life? I mean, I mean, thank you for referencing uh, my wife. In October, we will have been married for uh, 43 years. And my wife's always known me, so to speak. And she's always known that I've got a personal mission so to speak, to try and make the world a better place. It sounds really twee and prosaic and so on, but it's not meant to. But that's what's driven me my entire career. I think when we met before, when we spoke before, I talked about you know public service and my parents and so on. And so she understands who I am, I think it's fair to say. Yes, she would like me to go for more and longer walks with her and join her at the her art society and so on. But I think she knows that I'm not ready to do that quite yet. We do walk, we do spend time together. We talk about the holiday. We went away, there were 14 of us, our sons and their families, my brother and his family. We had an amazing time together. But I think in any relationship, it's about compromise. It's about give and take. It's about recognizing what makes 
your partner happy and recognizing that it is about giving and taking. And so that's how we've managed this phase, because I mentioned last time, I think I gave up full time work in 2015. I was very fortunate to be in a position to do that and took on a whole series of projects and a portfolio and so on. And effectively, the NHS has now overtaken my life and she can see that and she understands that. And we, we discuss it all the time. She doesn't understand exactly what I do and the issues, but, you know, she she also relies on the NHS. She's a type one diabetic, so she's in the system herself somewhere. So it works. It works. And I still get enough time to spend with our grandchildren, with our with our with our family more uh, generally and I do look after myself you know be that exercise be that meditation mindfulness so yeah it's uh you know do the best I can so one of the things this might feel a little bit embarrassing but just bear with me when so when I listen to a podcast if I'm if I'm usually if I'm out usually I'm out walking I will like write notes in like my notes app and the reason why I create this podcast because I will, I really do want it to be you know like a meaningful tool it's nice to listen to inspirational stories and you listen you think oh that was nice but I also really want people to take away you know like some tips we're all healthcare professionals doesn't matter where we are in the hierarchy we're all trying to lead and some of the things that I have taken from this conversation this is the first time you know like unedited when I'm listening to you I'm thinking about okay Tara how can I simplify the message in my communication you know like I use jargon I moan at people for using jargon and then I I use it so really think reflecting on my language I think simplifying the message reflecting on my language simplifying the process you know the role of creativity in how you communicate so it's really easy it depends who you are actually some people are really good at painting that vivid vision and like, follow me, this is a movement. And you can point to, you know, really, you know, historical things that have happened to say, I'm not just, you know, this is real life, we can do this. Mm. And then you've got other people that are a bit more, you know, like dry. Mm. <laughs> can you fill in this form, please? Mm. And I'm going to re re reflect on where I sit on that spectrum. I want to be that visionary leader. So that is one thing I will reflect on. I think I'll reflect on my, you know, like my leadership values mm -hmm. and I would say even though I'm very early on in my career I'd like to think I am in my second mountain you know I I love my job and we always say in the team it's about it's about the client and nothing makes us happier you know when you're talking yesterday I went to a meeting with the Macmillan is it Macmillan Trust is it a trust it was fantastic and we were talking about early cancer diagnosis and me and Jade come out of that meeting we're like oh, I love my job I love my job and you can take this and really make a difference you know like to patients and the network it's not just a tick box exercise so that I need to make sure I'm doing I sit more on that edge and not the other dry management -y edge and um, so those are the things I'm really going to think about and I but, hope that but Tara there you know there, there are lots of different ways to lead yeah you now there is that view that beware the charismatic leader you know beware the fireworks leaders all whoosh sparks and then it comes crashing down Jim Collins talks about the level five leader yeah know, yeah I've got yeah got yeah good good to great I think it's about authenticity. And I think 
people can smell inauthentic leaders. Now, I have had the opportunity to get to know you through these podcasts, uh, not wishing to over-egg it, but I'm a huge fan of your podcast, a huge fan of you. I think leadership is hard, and I think you share some of that your personal journey around that. You're always asking yourself questions. And again, you use podcasts, which is not for everybody. Yeah. That's not how everybody does that. But you're very honest in terms of some of the things that trouble you sometimes, some of the things you're struggling with. There is a view. You have to be fit to lead. And again, you use social media as a way of demonstrating that you are committed to being in a position where you are fit to lead. That's important. And you're all hang on, hang, hang on a minute. No, no. We might. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose we might have to edit this out. Okay. <laughs> so I don't. No, I think people will be interested in, in this conversation. When you say you have to demonstrate your fit, I suppose, what do you mean by that? To demonstrate that you're fit to lead? Leadership is hard. And if you are under pressure and you're making tough decisions and you're faced with complexity... Unless you are mentally, physically, and emotionally in the right space. And I know from personal experience, I was a chief executive that lost it for a year. I wasn't in the right place and I made some bad decisions. You've got to be fit to lead. Now, I know that you do not see yourself as an influencer. So, all these people that go onto social media say, look at me, look at me, look at me. But my sense of how your use of social media, is to inspire, is to demonstrate that as a, a working mother, you can find time to look after yourself, your mental health, your physical health. And that's really, really important. So when I say you've got to be fit to lead, that's not fit as in, you know, your integrity or whatever, but you've got to be mentally, physically okay. and emotionally in the right place to make the best decision that you possibly can, to lead your people the best way that you possibly can. And to bring all that together and we wish to edit it out. I hope you don't. <laughs> but you do that so well. And I've, this is I've lost my train of thought. Well, you know, <laughs> I have said to you on more than one occasion, you know, you are an inspiration. I don't know anyone who does what you do in the way that you do it. You have a unique position out there in this, in this, in this ecosystem that we all operate in. And I think, I suppose, we all do. We all do it in our own way. And I think that the, it's like, I'm so old. I'm not. Um, <laughs> <but> the, <laughs> so I'm so wise. But the older you get, or the, the, the more, well, in my, I can't speak for everybody. The older I get, the more confident I become. And we were talking about this book by Marie Kondo, The Joy of Work. And she talks about, you know, what brings you joy? What makes you happy? And when I was on holiday, I went to Italy, no phone, just my, just my husband and my kids. I was like, what makes me happy? It's like writing blogs. You know, our blog is really successful. You get thousands of views and it's a bit like, okay, can I do more of that? And why am I going to do more of that? And what does that, what joy does that give me? And that helps people. So I think what I do, we all have a talent and I think I like community. I think I'm quite creative in regards to, I like doing the podcast. I like writing. It's interesting. I'm like a business consultant, but actually I, I deliver that in a very, cre I, I scratch my creative itch. 
and it is daunting because I, it is different to what people are used to in some respects. But I think what I'm trying to say is we all have unique talents. And when you work out what it is that you love to do, sometimes there's no, there's no stopping you. You can't, when you're like, oh yeah, I've got it. Hmm. And then you just, you create the process. It is daunting that you do it once and then it's like the world didn't end. You do it again and it's like, okay, I'm still standing. I do it again. And you just get into the groove and you start to see those rewards. So everybody has got something. And I think if you don't have that, I highly recommend you going on holiday and leaving your phone at, <laughs> your phone at home and reading the book by Marie Kondo, Joy at Work and work out what it is. You've said, you know, I love it. It's my purpose. You know, it's, it's taken over my life. I love it. There's still so much for me to do. And we all have that. And if it's not your current job, you know, don't do it. You don't have to, you've got a choice. You ah, can do something different. That's the sweet spot. You know, nail being hit on head. If you work in an organization like the NHS, it may well be that you're not in a position to work in the way that you set out because you are constrained above, below, to the side. No. And within the ICB, we've talked about changing the culture within the ICB and working as far as we possibly can towards the culture that enables and supports people to really be themselves in the workplace, to, to maximise their, their, their creativity. Big discussions in the current conversation that I'm involved in is about risk and risk-taking. We know the NHS historically has had a love-hate relationship with this word risk and we know the implications of of that and we've seen that many many times with some of the most unfortunate situations but within our organization we want to encourage people to to take risks and understand that and to change away from what might be considered in some respects a blame culture or, or whatever and change all of that so that's our challenge now you're in a position that you've created for yourself that gives you the chance to do that in corporate organisations, be the NHS trusts, organisations of all sizes and shapes, that's that's a challenge. It is a challenge, and we have time for one. The last thing I just want to respond to that is that it's so funny. I the reason why I set up a, a business is partly because I did apply to work. Well, in the you know University of Kent didn't want me. You know, more for them. <laughs> And I did apply, you know, like I was a bit like, I'd love to be a practice manager, a general practice practice manager. And it was like, I couldn't get a job. And then the stars aligned. Um, but I never set out to work in to create this business. It was very coincidental. But I, I think I've got the best of both worlds. But that reflection around what is important to me. So my independence is really, really important to me. You know, like my work environment is really important to me. And it sounds shallow, but it's like, you've not been to my office yet, but it's like, I've got lots of plants. Like I'm quite particular in those things. So I think I I, it sounds shallow, but my work environment is really important to me. The location is really important to me. So I can, my, my office is just down my road. You know, the clients I choose, you know, like I'm not exclusive to one client. So they have to, I'm very upfront now, you know, like this is what we offer. This is how we work. I would love to work with you, but these are some non-negotiables. So, you know, when you get into a, rela a relationship, a work relationship, and you kind of go, yeah, 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 it's all fine. Yeah, it's all fine. Yeah, 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 no problem. I'll come to you every day. And then it's like, mm, I don't really, 
you just said it to get the job and then it's like well I don't really want to mm-hmm. really want to do that so I think that I have managed and so many people every portfolio GP has got this you know like mm-hmm. there's a role for portfolio what's its polarity you need both you mm-hmm. need stability and you need that mobile workforce and you can't not everybody needs to be wants to be can be salaried in an organization I think I've got that balance I'm so lucky. I consider myself an NHS manager, but I have that independence that I really need to be able to do my job. I get off my soapbox now. No, stay on that soapbox. But to circle back, from what I have seen, heard, read, listened to, observed, and so on, the thing that comes across in every interaction, be it directly or, or through your podcast or your blogs or whatever, is this word authenticity. And I think that this is what is so important and will be more and more and more important as we go forward. We talk about the NHS and the change we're going through. We're out of the Lansley era now of competition and, and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Now it is about collaboration. That is the word of the day, of the week, of the month. It's going to take some time to get there. But in order to collaborate, you've got to build trust. And that takes time. And it's not about trust, trust me, Tara, because I tell you to, or I I mean, you know, it doesn't work that Mm. way. You know, so all of this, I think, is really important. And this is the backdrop against which we're trying to build this new way of working. You know, I'm hesitant to use the word integration because I poo-pooed it. But this collaborative way of working, you know, I am meeting on a regular basis with the leaders of Kent and Medway councils. And at our first couple of meetings, there was a cast of thousands. And I said, look, I just really like to meet with you both, just the three of us. Let's just, you know, and we we got to know each other. We, we talk about all sorts of things, as you would expect. They have their positions, understandably so. They're democratically uh, accountable. We get all of that. But they want what I want. You know, they want the best for the people they're here to serve, as do I. That's what, what a great place to start. Common ground from our first discussion. Sadie, thank you so much. You have to come back for round three. <laughs> thank you, Tara. I've really enjoyed this conversation you've made me think actually and I'm not going to go out for a run now but I'll go out for a walk cool thank you (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for joining us if you like what you hear I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five star review I know many of you give us a shout out on social media which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast so please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care on Instagram and on LinkedIn just look for Tara Humphrey and if you're not subscribed to our newsletter please do you get to hear more insights more confessions some tips some tools and a roundup of our activity over the week so click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode